0: Nice guys. Go and grab your Bibles with me this morning, church, and uh, open up again to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 30 this morning. Psalm 30, and by the way, there are 150 Psalms, 150 chapters, so that means after this morning we'll be uh, 20% of the way done, a fifth of the way done with Psalms, and the way we're doing it, kind of staggering it in between other studies. It'll be a long time before we get to the end, but Psalm 30 today. And before we dive into it, let's bow together again for a word of prayer and just ask for the Lord's help. Father, we come this morning acknowledging that we are completely, totally dependent on your grace. Lord, we were rightfully counted as your enemies. Lord, we were the rebels. We were the defiers. We were in our sin, and Lord, it is by grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, that... We've now been given a seat at your table, that you've brought us near, that you've adopted us as sons and daughters, and so, Father, we come this morning not standing in our wisdom, not standing in our goodness, not standing in our service, but trusting solely in the work that Jesus has done for us. Thank you that we have a Savior who, as we sang just a second ago, didn't just wash away some of our sin or most of our sin, but through His work, Your wrath that is rightfully due us has been fully satisfied. And so Lord, thank You that we stand before You this morning justified. We stand before You knowing that Your attitude toward us through Christ is one of goodness and favor and love and mercy. And so Father, we come clinging to that this morning and asking again, God, that You would show mercy in speaking to us through Your Word. And so God, I pray that You would open hearts. Uh, God, I pray that Where needed, you would bring life. I pray that you would give encouragement and correction. And we pray that all of that would be done through the the instrumentation of Scripture. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, church, we're in Psalm 30. And, of course, you know by now, Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. 150 chapters to Psalms. And Psalms is largely given to us, not entirely, but it's largely given to us by God to teach us how to pray. So we know as Christians that that prayer is supposed to be part of our lives. We uh, read several different verses this morning on, on the importance of prayer. So when God saves us, it's not just a status change, right? In other words, when God saves you, it's not just you believe and now you're moved from the category of lost to the category of saved. You're moved from condemnation to righteousness. That's absolutely true, but that's not all that happens at salvation. It's not just a status change, it's also a relationship change. So when you come to faith in Jesus, you are actually adopted into the family of God and given a relationship with the God who made you. And relationships include communication. God speaks to us through His Word, and we now speak back to God through prayer. We understand that, but how are we supposed to pray? Well, the Psalms show us that. Maybe think of it this way. Think of a little kid who's wanting to figure out how to draw, uh, let's say, a, a giraffe. He's trying to figure out how to draw a giraffe, but he just can't figure it out. And so finally, he gets on his computer and he gets online and he finds a drawing of a giraffe online. And he prints it out and he gets the printout off of the printer and he lays it on the table and then he gets his sheet of paper and he lays it on top of the printout of the giraffe and then he traces the lines from the printout. Well... The Psalms show us the lines we can trace in our prayers. They give us guidance for how to pray. I'll tell you something else that, that I've been thinking about over the last few weeks. One of the sweet things about the Psalms is that, and I'll tell you personally, I found myself praying the Psalms more over the last month than I have at any point in my life. I found myself repeating lines and verses from the Psalms over and over in my prayers. And one of the things that has dawned on me is, As we make the prayers of the Psalms our own, we are joining in with the voices of thousands of Christians around the world and millions of Christians who have lived before us who have prayed these exact same prayers. These aren't the first times these prayers have been prayed. Listen to the way Gerald Wilson wrote it. This is in his commentary on Psalms. He explained it this way. He said, whenever you read the Psalms, you are praying, singing, and reading alongside a huge crowd of faithful witnesses throughout the ages. The words you speak have been spoken thousands, even millions of times before. As you read or sing or pray, off to your right stand Moses and Miriam. In front of you, David and Solomon kneel kneel down, while from behind come the voices of Jerome, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and more. So many more. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying these are prayers that have stood the test of time. So many great Christians over the years have cut their teeth on how to pray by working through the psalms. They've made these prayers their own prayers. And now here we are thousands of years later and and we get to do the same thing. We get to use these same psalms as a gift from God to teach us to pray. And Psalm 30 is a pretty straightforward psalm of thanksgiving. And the, the setting for this, what you figure out as you work through it, is that, that David is just on the other side of some significant trial. He's just coming through the backside of a struggle, and you find out in the psalm that the struggle was the sickness. There was an illness David was going through that looked like it might be fatal. David was wondering if he would manage to survive this sickness. And so in this trial, he cried out to God for mercy, and God heard him. And God rescued him. And so now this psalm is David praising God for his rescue. And you'll see in just a second as we read it, you probably won't be familiar with most of this psalm, but there is one line in this psalm that I would guarantee just about everyone in here will be familiar with. One line. Weeping may endure for the night. You remember the rest of that? But joy comes in the morning. That's Psalm 30, and that's really the theme of it. I need to say one thing else about David's suffering. So I mentioned that David is just coming on the other side of sickness here. But the sickness that David had just experienced was the result of sin in his life. So the sickness was God actually disciplining David for a particular episode of sin. I need to be quick to say that's not always the case, right? That there are times in the Christian life we suffer precisely because we're serving the Lord. You think of Paul in 1 Timothy saying, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then there's a lot of suffering we, we go through in the Christian life that's just part and parcel to being in a fallen world. But we also recognize that there are times in our lives where God sends suffering as an act of discipline. God sends suffering into our lives to correct us for something that we were doing. And Psalm 30 is David experiencing God's discipline. He's just come through it. It's very similar to what the writer of Hebrews describes in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, if you're not familiar with it, is probably the most important passage in the Bible when it comes to God's discipline of His children. I'm just going to read part of it. Listen to Hebrews 12. I'm starting in verse 5 and going down through verse 8. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, And he quotes from the Old Testament. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and and, and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what, what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. What's that passage about? It's about God's discipline, right? If you love your kids as a parent, what does loving your kids entail? It includes disciplining your kids, because you don't want your kids growing up to be snotty, lazy troublemakers. And so if you see that behavior in your kids, what do you do? I hope what you do is you correct your kids. What does that correction look like? Well, sometimes it's just a verbal correction. You speak to your kids, right? Well, he explains here in Hebrews 12, that's what God does sometimes. We sin, and God verbally corrects us, either just by reading his word, or we hear a sermon, or a friend speaks to us, and there's a verbal correction. But is that the only way you correct your kids? No, sometimes your correction is not aimed at their ears. Your correction is aimed a little further south, right? Right? Your correction is aimed at your kid's backsides. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying that God also sometimes does that in our lives. We experience God's, he calls it scourging, his chastening. Sometimes God spanks, spiritually spanks, might show up physically, but spanks his children. Well, that's what David has just experienced. So he has just experienced an illness that was the result of, of God's discipline. i I keep using that word, so I want to say one other thing. I know it's a long introduction. But we're talking about God's discipline. But you realize there's a difference between God's discipline and God's punishment. So punishment is, is driven by wrath, and punishment is about God making us pay for our sins. But if you're a Christian, you'll never face that. If you're a Christian, you are not now, and you will not ever face the punishment of God. God is not going to make you pay for your sins. That is the wonderful news of the gospel, is that Jesus has paid in full for our sins. He went to the cross to take the entirety of judgment, to take all the punishment. The wrath of God owed to me for my rebellion was poured out in full to exhaustion on Jesus in my place. So if your faith is in Christ, you are not under and will not be under the punishment of God. There is, Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You won't be punished by God, but you will be disciplined by God. God will not make you, Christian, pay for your sins. God's goal goal is not to make you pay. God's goal is to make you grow. Punishment and discipline have two different motivations, and they have two different ends in mind. Punishment is motivated by wrath, and the goal is retribution. Discipline is motivated by love, and the goal is maturity. So if you're a Christian, if you've turned from your sins to trust in Jesus, listen now, you have been saved from God's punishment, but you have been saved into God's discipline. God has now, through faith in Jesus, adopted you and made you his child. And as God's child, you have God as your father, and your father perfectly, righteously disciplines his children. Well, David has experienced that. He's on the backside of God's discipline, and even in the discipline, he's seen God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's mercy. And this psalm is David praising God for his faithfulness in the discipline. Okay, so with all of that said, let's read it together. Psalm 30, and we'll read the Psalm through in its entirety, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 30 beginning in verse 1, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by Your favor, You have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. And here's the resolution. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O oh, Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Okay, so we're going to work through this psalm under four headings. Here's the first one. Number one, David praises God. Do you notice how it opens with just a, a hymn of praise? That's the first stanza, verses 1 through 3. I will extol you, O oh Lord. For you have lifted me up. I will extol you. Extol is not a word that we use very often. What does extol mean? Extol means to exalt or or to lift up. Think of somebody who's lifting up something high. That's the word that David's using. So David is saying that in his his thoughts and in his prayers and in his songs, he is going to lift up his God. He's going to lift up Yahweh. Why? Why? Did you pick up the second part of it in verse 1? He says, I will extol you, for you have lifted me up. Do you see how there's a play on words here? David is saying, Lord, I will extol you. I'm going to lift you up. Why? Because you have lifted me up. In fact, the word that David uses here for lifted up was a word that was used to describe how you would, you would pull a, a bucket out of a well. And it's like David is saying, that's where I was. I was low. I was in trouble. And God, like you would pull a bucket out of a well, God pulled me out of this low place. And and I could just stop and say, listen, this is the testimony of every single Christian. We were apart from God and we were sinking in our immorality, in our false religion, in our uh, hypocrisy and self-righteousness, in our addiction, in you fill in the blank." We were in the well and God lifted us out. So how do we respond to that? David says, you lifted me out, so I'm going to now lift you up. I will extol you, O God, for you have lifted me up. And what David seemed to have been sinking in here, I mentioned a second ago, was a sickness. Because notice the words that he uses. David says in verses 1 through 3 that God healed him. God brought him up from the grave. God kept him alive. It was as if David had one foot in the grave and he cried out to God for help. And even notice that phrase. David says, I cried out to God. That's the way that David describes prayer so often in the Psalms. David didn't just stoically, mechanically pray to God. How did David pray? So often, David's prayers are cries out to God. I mean, think about that, Christian. Does that ever describe your prayer life? Would you ever describe your prayer life as crying out with a sense of urgency and desperation? That's where David was. There was this severe angst in David's heart. So that helpless, he cries out to God for help. And David is amazed. God heard him. God answered him. God rescued him. And because of that, David says, his enemies aren't going to be able to rejoice. Now, the, the suffering here wasn't—it doesn't seem to have been caused by his enemies But David always had enemies who were watching closely, kind of rubbing their hands together, who were eager to see David fail, they were eager to see David suffer, they were eager to see David fall apart, and they're looking forward to gloating when David dies. And David is saying that much to the chagrin of his enemies, God had rescued him. He didn't didn't deserve it. David hadn't done anything to earn God's help. Nevertheless, God had reached down to David in this pit, and God had pulled him up. And so now it's like David is saying, how can I not praise you? His heart is just bursting with gratitude toward God. I was reading a story this past week. There was a politician in South Carolina for many, many years named Moffat Burris. And uh, after serving in in, uh, the South Carolina legislature for a long time, early in his life, in his 20s, Mr. Burris fought in World War II. He was part of the 504th Infantry Regiment, which is part of the 82nd Airborne. And his regiment had been one of the first regiments on the ground during uh, Operation Market Garden, which is one of the big, it was the largest airborne operation in military history up to that point, like 35,000 paratroopers were involved, and Mr. Burris's regiment had been one of the groups that had parachuted into the Netherlands, where they were trying to, in World War II, capture several key bridges and, and free some Dutch cities and push back the German army, and one of the battles that his group fought in was a particularly fierce battle. They were fighting for the, the city of Nijmegen and they had to paddle in inflatable boats across a river under German fire using the butt of their rifles as paddles to get across and then they, they got to the other side and they had to climb up this big dike and then they had to run 900 yards across an open field, no cover, nothing to hide behind, right into the teeth of the German artillery and scores of men were killed in it but they ended up liberating the city. Well. When he was in his mid-80s, Mr. Burris went back to all these different places he had fought in Europe. He he had, I think it was a son and a grandson who traveled with him. They went back to the Netherlands. They went back to Nijmegen. They they stood on the bridge that he and his men had fought for. He looked back on that river. He stood on that dike and he looked over that 900-yard stretch of ground that so many of his friends had been killed on. And there were a couple of uh, Dutch tour guides who were with him. And after he had gone to all these sites, they took him to a memorial that the people of Nijmegen had built there in, in memory of the men of the 504th Infantry. And on this memorial were engraved the names of all of the men who had been killed fighting to liberate that city. And so Mr. Burris was taken by these tour guides to that memorial and he stood there and, and slowly read every name on the memorial. Many of the names he knew In fact, he said that he could still see their faces and hear their voices as he read the names of all the men who had been killed. Well, when they were wrapping up their time there, he noticed that there were a number, you know how sometimes at memorials there will be permanent vases that are built there. And he noticed that all the vases that were around this memorial had fresh-cut flowers in them. And so he made a remark to the tour guide. He said, man, we must have timed this really well. What's the national holiday? What's special today that has all these fresh-cut flowers here? and the tour guide very very somberly said this isn't a special occasion in memory of these men we put fresh cut flowers here every day and his point was that after the sacrifices those men had made to rescue that city they wanted to make sure every day they did something to show their gratitude well, well isn't that the exact position that we're in as Christians we, we were enemies of God When Christ paid the price to make us His, what we owe, listen, God doesn't owe me a good, easy, trouble-free life. God doesn't owe me answered prayers. Stephen read in Matthew 7 that He's a good God, a Father who gives good things to His children. I don't deserve any of that, yet He loads my life down with good things. So how can I stop praising Him? Shouldn't shouldn't I bring God fresh-cut flowers every day, to use that story? Doesn't He deserve my gratitude every day for what he's done here's the way Charles Spurgeon said it Spurgeon wrote grace has uplifted us from the pit of hell from the ditch of sin Uh, here's a reference to pilgrims progress from the slew of despond from the bed of sickness from the bondage of doubts and fears have we no song to offer for all this how high has our Lord lifted us he's lifted us up into the children's place to be adopted into his family. He's lifted us up into union with Christ to sit together with him in heavenly places. I mean, shouldn't our hearts burst with the same sort of gratitude David's heart was bursting with? Here's the second part. Number two David calls God's people to sing. Look at verses four and five. David says, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his. And give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Do you see what's happening here, how it goes from personal to corporate? It's like David goes from singing a solo to singing a choir anthem. David looks over all of the saints and David says, If you've experienced God's grace the way I have, sing with me. Now, I've made this point a lot in Psalms, and I'm going to keep making it because you can't get away from it. Listen to me. God's people sink. It shows up again and again in the Bible. In in just a few chapters from now in Psalms, one of my favorite is Psalm 40. Listen to the way David says it in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry, He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. You see what he's describing? He was in the miry clay. He was stuck in the pit. God rescued him from that, set his feet on a rock. And what's the result? David says, he put a song in my mouth. We don't sing as Christians because we're obligated to sing. We sing as Christians because God has given us a song to sing. People who have been rescued by God can't help but sing to God. You see it everywhere in the Bible. When you read through Exodus and God rescues the people of Israel from Egypt and leads them across the Red Sea and the seas collapse on the armies of Pharaoh, what do they do when they get to the other side of the Red Sea? Read Exodus 15. They sing when when the walls of Jerusalem were finally rebuilt during the days of Nehemiah. What did they do to celebrate? They all got together and they split into two groups and they marched in opposite direction around the walls, playing instruments and singing as they went. Again, what's the longest book in our Bibles? It's a song book. What does Paul command the church to do in the New Testament? Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. He gives almost the exact same command in Ephesians. Ephesians five eighteen and 19. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You realize that's not just a command for people in the church who sing really, really, really well. This is a command for all of God's people. We sing. We don't come to church to sit in a pew and be sung to. It's fine. It's fine to have a solo or a choir special from time to time. But that is not the music ministry of the church. The main music ministry of the church is not other people singing as we sit. The main music ministry of the church is we lift our voices to sing to God together. It's one of the ways we worship God and one of the ways we encourage each other. And one of the key ways truth sticks in our hearts. When you take a grand truth and you marry it to a good melody, it has a way of sticking in your heart. This is why one of the, one of the terrible things that was done in the Middle Ages, is the Roman Catholic Church took singing away. They didn't sing in their worship services. That wasn't allowed anymore. There might be some paid singers who would come and sing a song in Latin, or you might hear the priest do a chant. But there was no congregational singing. One, in fact, one of the guys who's looked at is sort of the trailblazer for Martin Luther, his name was John Huss, And and John Huss was brought up on three charges by the Roman Catholic Church. He was eventually executed for these charges. Three charges by the Roman Catholic Church. One of the things he was charged with is he encouraged congregational singing. The horror of it. He encouraged God's people to sing. Well, one of the results of the Reformation, there's a return to Scripture and a return to the Gospel. So guess what that resulted in? It resulted in a return to singing. Songs started reverberating from the church again as God's people start singing together. In fact, the great reformer Martin Luther loved music. He compiled a hymnal to use in the churches and encouraged people to sing and sing in parts and sing in harmonies. And I'm going to read, this is the foreword to Luther's hymnal. You'll see how much, how important Luther thought singing was in the church. Luther wrote, I truly desire that all Christians would love and regard as worthy the lovely gift of music, which is a precious, worthy, and costly treasure given to mankind by God. The riches of music are so excellent and so precious that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. In summary, next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts, and spirits. Now, in this next phrase, you'll see how Luther can very quickly turn to a a serrated side. A person who gives this some thought and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Luther wasn't one to mince words. But you see what he thought And what he thought was true, singing is a gift from God to the church. If you have experienced the work of God in your life and the gifts of God in your life, how in the world can you not sing? And we say something about God in how we sing. Have you ever been to a wedding where maybe the bride or groom is very talented musically? and the bride or the groom sings a song in the wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding like that? Well, just imagine for a minute. Imagine going to a wedding, and you're sitting there, and the bride, in this wedding ceremony, sings one of the songs. Well, what would you think if, as you watch the bride, pick up the microphone and begin to sing? What if she was completely expressionless? What if she just mumbled through the words of the song, never actually looked at the groom, very listlessly made it through, looked completely stoic the whole time, checked her watch a couple times while she was singing, you would rightfully question her feelings for the groom, right? Her singing should match her feelings. She's singing to the man that she is committing to spend the rest of her life with. So you would expect her singing to be engaged and passionate and heartfelt should our singing to god be anything less than that listen to the way the writer of chronicles describes god's people this is first chronicles thirteen eight. i love this phrase that he uses then david and all israel played music before god with all their might with singing on harps on stringed instruments on tambourines on cymbals and with trumpets." I love that phrase. How did they sing? With all their might. Have you ever walked out of a service thinking, I just sang with all my might. Well that's how David describes the singing of God's people. This is what our singing should look like as those who have experienced the grace of God. So hear David say here, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of His. But you notice how in verse 5 he doesn't just kind of leave that hanging. Sing David then tells us why we should sing. Look at how he starts verse 4. Notice the first word. For or, or because. In other words, sing because his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. The anger that he's talking about here is the anger of the Lord's discipline. David is saying, yeah, God disciplines his children, but it's only for a moment. God's discipline is temporary, but His favor is forever. Take take it again to how parenting works. So parents, if your kids disobey you, you correct it. They experience your displeasure over their behavior. But displeasure isn't what defines your attitude towards your kids, is it? They experience your correction in the moment, But displeasure isn't what defines your attitude. Love is what defines your attitude. Favor is what defines your attitude. Even in the discipline, everything you do for your kids is colored by your love for them and you're wanting best for them. Well, that's what David's saying God's disposition is toward his children. Do we experience discipline that is real and at times painful? Yes, but David is saying the discipline of God, the pain is never the last word. And because anger is never the last word, he says at the end of verse 5, that also means weeping is never the last word. So he says, weeping may endure for the night. Depending on the translation you have, it might, word, it might read, weeping tarries for the night. And it's a word that would imply how you would temporarily stay in a hotel. It's the idea that, that weeping might can stop for a visit, but it can't move in. This is how weeping works with Christians. It can only stay temporarily with god's people so if you're traveling out of town next week and you have to get a a, a room at a hotel you know how it often works the next morning you'll get out of bed and you'll find a bill slid up underneath your door that bill's there not just to remind you of what you owe that bill's there for another reason it's there to remind you you can't stay it's there to remind you you gotta you gotta go well that's what he's saying here about weeping that weeping can visit god's people but it can't move in Weeping can't be permanent among God's people. At some point, the weeping is going to give way to joy. Now, I need to say this very quickly. That's true for you if you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus. If you have not done that, if you are holding on to your sins and living in rebellion against Christ, it is not true that weeping will give way to joy. In fact, the way eternity is described is weeping. That's the way hell is often described in the Bible, is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But for those who repent and turn to Christ, weeping will not last forever. It's always true that joy comes in the morning. So just just hear that, Christian. Maybe you're in a a period of suffering. Maybe it's even a prolonged period of suffering. Maybe it's a period of suffering where you find your, your pillow often wet at night with tears that you're shedding. Well, hear David saying here that the day is coming when your tears of suffering are going to give way to shouts of joy. There is coming a day when the weeping will end. In fact, the ultimate fulfillment of this comes in Revelation. Listen to these verses you're familiar with. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. John writes, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Listen, if, if your faith is in Jesus, hang on, because better days are coming. The, the night of weeping will give way to the morning of joy. That's the promise. And here's the third part. Number three. David remembers his troubles. What's happening in verses 6 and 7 is David is going to go back and tell us where his problem originated. There was a sin in David's life that led to this season of discipline. So here's how he describes it, verses 6 and 7. David says, Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountains stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. you get what David's describing? David went through a season of prosperity, where God blessed David. You remember, we've talked about it before, so much of David's life was hard. David's life was insecure and unstable, but there were periods of David's life where everything in the kingdom seemed great. Plenty of finances, his enemies had been subdued, his kingdom, kingdom seemed to be established, and what should David have done during those seasons? Well, he should have thanked God for it. He didn't make himself strong. God made him strong. But you see what happened instead? Pride started creeping into David's heart. It's echoed in that one phrase where David said, I shall never be moved. You see what he's saying there? It's like David is going, hey, I've I've made it now. I'm so rich or I'm so powerful or I'm so stable that nothing could ever bring me down now. Nothing could ever make me fail now. So he's He's so busy patting himself on the back for his accomplishments that he loses sight that everything he has is a gift from God and everything he has could be taken away in a moment. Listen, that's true for every one of us, right? You realize your life, my life, is unbelievably fragile. Your job could be gone in a moment. Your health could be gone in a moment. Your family could be turned upside down in a moment. So we're called to constantly live our lives with a sense of humility before God, and with gratitude to God. But David's heart began to fill with pride, and David thought, nothing could ever bring me down until, David says, you hid your face and I was troubled. That's the discipline he went through. So David's heart swells with pride, and then he says that God hid his face. God hiding his face is the idea that God withdrew his help. It was like God temporarily felt to David like God took a step back from David. David felt as strong as a mountain, but God has a way of making those mountains crumble. And all of a sudden, David began to wobble. Maybe a good way to think about it is think of a dad who is teaching his little boy to ride a bike. So you've got the little boy on the bike, and he is pedaling with all his might, and all the while, the dad is running behind him with his hand on the seat keeping the bike balanced, making sure that it doesn't fall over one way or another. But the little boy thinks he's doing it on his own. So he sees his dad behind him, and he tells his dad to let him do it on his own, to take his hand off the seat. And so finally the dad lets him have his wishes, and he takes his hand off the seat. And instantly the bike starts to wobble. And we end up with scraped knees and bloody elbows. It's like that's what had happened in David's life. David felt like he had done all this on his own. I shall never be moved, he says. And so God took his hand off the seed and everything in David's life began to wobble. And in David's suffering, he cries out to God. Verses 8 through 10 is his cry in the middle of his suffering where he says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? hear O lord and have mercy on me lord be my helper what is it that david realized during this season of weeping he realized he needed the lord in this season of suffering all of a sudden his self-sufficiency absolutely collapsed and david realized how desperately he needed god i don't know if you've experienced this in your life Nothing in my life gets my attention back refocused on the Lord, quite like suffering. So David, who started thinking he was awfully strong on his own, goes through a, series, uh, a season of suffering, and his eyes are quickly turned back to God, and he begins praying, God, help me. Lord, if, if I die, that's just one less voice on this earth to sing praises. So please be my helper. And God had helped him. So he's using his story as an example of what he just said in verse 5. He just said in verse 5, weeping will only endure for the night. And now David points to his life and saying, that's what happened to me. I, I turned away from the Lord. God disciplined me, but his discipline wasn't forever. God's discipline doesn't tell the whole story. His joy came in the morning. And then final point, quickly. Number four, David rejoices in God. Look at verses 11 and 12. David writes, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So what had God done for David? Notice now, God hadn't just stopped David's mourning. It's not that the Lord had just looked at David and go, look, David, that's enough. Dry it up already. No, God had actually transformed his mourning into dancing. David says, he took off my sackcloth. Sackcloth is what you would wear during seasons of grief. And David is saying, God stripped off my sackcloth and God has now clothed me in gladness. It's like God had wrapped David in joy like a blanket. So what does he say now in his joy? God's rescued him. So does David fall back into his pride does he go back into saying, I shall never be moved. Look how strong I am. That's not what he says now. He's learned his lesson. David instead says, my glory will sing praise to you. My glory means my whole being. David is saying, Lord, after what you've done for me, I'm going to sing your praise with everything that I have. I'm going to honor you with everything that I am. And how long is David determined to do this? What's the last word of our psalm? Forever. Forever. He's going to do this forever. How long is David going to know God's goodness? Forever. How long is David going to praise God? Forever. This is why we're ending here in just a minute with 10,000 reasons, because of that last verse. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending. How long? 10,000 years and then forevermore. That's what David is saying in this song. So, brothers and sisters, hasn't God been good to us? Weren't we the ones who were stuck sinking in a pit in death's darkness, in spiritual misery and lostness, when God reached down and scooped us out of that? Hasn't your testimony been of God over and over and over turning your mourning into joy? We go through seasons of mourning, sometimes very long seasons of mourning, but God transforms our mourning into dancing. And we have the promise that one day those seasons of mourning are going to be over forever. One day those seasons of weeping are going to be no more. God's going to transform our mourning forever into joy. And so what should our response be to all of that? Our response should be the same as David's. Oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Church, let that be your song this morning as we Dismiss here in a few minutes. Lord, I'm going to sing your praise forever because you have blessed me beyond measure. You have transformed my mourning into joy. You have stripped off the sackcloth and you have clothed me in gladness and it is all owed to your grace so I will not be silent. I'm going to extol you. I'm going to lift you up. That's our anthem as a church. So let's bow together for a word of prayer.